Amen. Think about that line. Everything that you have spoken will come to pass. Let it be done. And the reason that we gather together is so that we can say, what, what are the promises that God has spoken? Uh, can, we, can, we, can we identify them? Can we articulate them? Can we receive them and hold on to them together? That's why we gather. So let me pray for us that God would open our hearts and minds as we come to his word. God, we long to receive your reign. And I pray that now, Lord, uh, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, you would, you would remove anything seen or unseen that would prevent us from receiving from you. God, I pray that uh, you would remove, the just you'd filter out the lies of the enemy and that you would allow your light to break through the dark corners of our minds, our hearts, our relationships, and our dreams. God, we want, we want to receive from you. So open our hands uh, so that we can willingly anticipate uh, what you desire to give us as we give you our surrender and our confidence. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we continue our series, The Space Between. And initially we talked about what does it mean to be in this kind of space between uh, a trauma? Or what does it mean to be in a space between God developing us? And Brad Gray come and talk about how does it, what does it mean to be in a space between looking back and understanding how God has been faithful to us even when our future is uncertain. And last week, Craig talked about the space between promise and fulfillment and did just a great job unpacking the story of Abraham and Sarah. God had given them a promise, but because God wasn't delivering on their timeline, they thought they would jump in and, and help God out. They tried to manufacture an answer to his prayer. Uh, Craig had this great line where he said that when we, when we try to force uh, our circumstances into achieving God's purposes for our lives, it's like God, doing God's will the devil's way. And when I look at Abraham and Sarah, I realize that they were people of experience. They had means. They had influence. And they were able to kind of use their networks, their resources, even their finances to try to bend their circumstances towards what they wanted. And sometimes we can do that. But many times in life, we are kind of backed into a corner and we feel completely powerless over the circumstances in our lives that feel stacked against us. And we feel like we're stuck. We feel like we're not just in a rut. We feel like we're in a prison. We feel completely boxed in. I was in prison once. Let me explain. I was doing a, a youth ministry internship in Arizona, and one of the members of our congregation was a corrections officer, and he said, hey, would you, would you like to have a tour of the, the prison? I go, of course. And so he's walking me down these long corridors, and he brings me to a particular cell, and he goes, would, would you like to go inside and check it out? And I go, that, that, yeah, that sounds like fun. And there are these really narrow, this little tiny slit for a window, and light could come in, but it was so high up on the wall that you couldn't, couldn't peek out, and the walls were stark and barren, and... He goes, let, let me lock you in for a little bit. And so uh, with, without a lot of conversation, there's just this heavy metal clang of the door and the, the latch locking shut. And so I sat on this tile, ceramic tile shelf that was a poor excuse for a bed and just stared at the wall for all of about 90 seconds, at which point I said, I think I'm done now. Come and let me out. I, I don't know what circumstance in your life feels like a prison. I don't know where you feel like you are done and you are desperate for God or anyone who's listening to unlatch that door, swing it open, and release you. It could be a marriage that you feel like is unraveling. You, you might be fighting for it, but you've got an unresponsive spouse. Or It could be the diagnosis of an illness that just doesn't seem like it's letting up or relenting that you're having to grind through or Maybe you've got a child that you have given everything that you know to who as an adult just keeps veering on a path that is just so heartbreaking to you and so destructive to them. Or maybe you just feel like you're stuck in a, in a dead end loop 
like just you're, you're in a spiral for a career and you're on a hamster wheel and you, you can't get out. You, you think that you're created for more, but you don't, that option hasn't presented itself yet. So you just keep going around and around and around. And this morning we're going to look at this story of a guy who's stuck in prison and doesn't know if or when he'll ever get out. How do you navigate that season? This character in scripture, his name is Joseph, and we need a little bit of his backstory so we can figure out how exactly he ended up in prison. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Bibles. The verses are going to be up on the screen if you want to do it that way. But if you'd like a hard copy of the scriptures, please do us a, hand, uh, do us a favor, raise your hand, and the team who's coming down the aisles would be happy to get one to you. We are in Genesis chapter 37. It's going to be page 39 in your Bible. Now, I'll go ahead and start in verse 3. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Isn't that awesome? That dream that I had. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So let's just stop right now and look at the lessons that we have learned so far. A Joseph comes from a deeply dysfunctional family. He has 10 older brothers from three different mothers. He is the son of his father's favorite wife, which is an issue all on its own, who died giving birth to his younger brother. His dad is guilty of blatant favoritism. Joseph gets an ornate cloak. And some scholars say that it wasn't necessarily the decoration on this robe, it was the actual cut of the fabric that made it stand out. Because apparently back in that time, in that location, only princesses and noblemen wore coats that had long sleeves and went all the way down to the ankles. So even just the cut of that fabric was saying something. So not only does his father, Jacob, make the mistake of, of having a favorite son, he publicly identifies him as the favorite son. How many of you grew up in a family where you had, like, siblings? And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your parents had a favorite. Like, don't raise your hand. If they're here, it'll be awkward for everybody. But I'm the fifth of six, and my brother and sisters swear to this day that my parents showed, like, favor towards us younger kids. I think they just got tired of parenting by the time they got to fifth and sixth. I don't think they loved us anymore. They were just tapping out. But Joseph's father has the audacity to publicly identify Joseph as the favorite in the family and in the community. So his dad's guilty of blatant favoritism, and Joseph is guilty of unchecked narcissism. He says to all of his brothers, he goes, one day you all will bow down to me. If you're already on thin ice with your family, don't tell them that you will be their boss. It does not serve you well. Now, it's one thing for him to have received the coat from his father. It's another thing for him to actually wear it in front of his brothers. Every single day he put that on, he was just sticking his finger in their eye. It's one thing to have a dream about your future destiny. It's another thing to share it publicly with people who are already insecure about you as the rising star. Make no mistake, no matter what you have heard in Sunday school or what you viewed in Donny Osmond starring musicals, Joseph is not a happy-go-lucky teen with an eye for ancient fashion. He is a self-centered, self-promoting, and attention-seeking brat. That said... Even his worst behavior doesn't warrant 
what his brothers are about to do to him. At 17, his father sends him to check on his brothers who are watching sheep in another town. And when they see him on the horizon, and they know it's him from a distance because they can see the silhouette of that dumb jacket from far, far away, (laughs) they come up with a plan. They say, let's kidnap him. And they do, and they throw him into a pit. And some of his brothers are actually saying, let's kill him. Can Can you imagine actually being within earshot of other people who are debating whether or not to take your life? Well, that's traumatic in and of itself. And one of his older brothers intervenes and says, you know what, let's, let's not do that, let's sell him. And so they sell him to a band of traveling merchants, slave traders, and then in order to kind of create a cover-up, they take the coat, they tear it up, they cut it, they dip it in blood, and then they send it back to his father, who rightly assumes that he's been killed in some animal mauling, some kind of attack. At that point, he's taken to a different country, Egypt, with a new language and a new culture. He's given a job working for an Egyptian official, Potiphar, who's the captain of the king's guard. Apparently, he does this for years and years, and he does it well, until his boss's wife propositions him. He turns her down day after day until one day, in a kind of a dramatic climax of the moment, she tries to seduce him, and he runs out of the room. And as he flees, she grabs a hold of his coat that he leaves behind in her hands. Chapter 39, verses 16 through 18 says, she kept his cloak beside her until her master came home. And then she's got to come up with a cover-up because he's run out of the office, only half-clothed. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came here to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoner were confined. Now, some scholars believe that Potiphar, as the captain of the king's guard, was also in charge of overseeing all official state-sponsored executions. If that's the truth, then he is killed before, without hesitation, and he could probably kill his own slave, which would have been viewed as his own private personal property, without any consequences at all. So what's interesting is that Joseph is alive to actually be sent to prison. And the fact that he's put in not just any prison, but in the royal prison, a white-collar prison, is evidence that Potiphar, who has always respected Joseph, is not entirely buying his wife's story. And now for the second time in a decade, Joseph is literally stripped of his clothes, unjustly imprisoned, and thrown in a pit. And surprisingly, Joseph is able to maintain his sanity and his well-being in a very difficult season. And I believe that he gives us kind of three examples of what it means to survive prison. And they are these. To feel the presence, to find the perspective, and to fight the power. Feel the presence, find the perspective, and to fight the power. The first thing he does is he feels the presence. Joseph can survive this season because he knows he's not alone. Listen to what scripture says in verse 20. It says, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Listen to that again, verse 21, the Lord was with him. Verse 23, the Lord was with Joseph. 
When I read the story of Joseph, here's what I'm reminded of. God doesn't always get us out of the pit, but he always joins us there. God doesn't always get us out of the pit, but he always joins us there. For reasons that you and I can't explain, sometimes God allows turmoil. God permits hardship, but God is always present in that hardship with us. Now, to know that God is present and to feel that God is present are two different things. So our family's getting ready to finally make the cross-state move here to the Holland area, and we've been packing up boxes in our basement, and as Kelly and I are doing that, our, six, our youngest, our six-year-old Marion was playing Barbies in the corner because she doesn't like being in the basement by herself, and Kelly and I finished up one task, and we're getting ready to go upstairs, and even though I thought she was completely oblivious to our presence, as soon as we got ready to go upstairs, she's like, you're not leaving, are you? Like, she didn't just know we were there, she could feel that we were there, and when we got ready to not be there, she could feel that too. And I think that many of us, when, you know, maybe you've grown up in the church and your doctrine is all buttoned down and you're like, oh, I, it, cognitively, I know that God is here, but emotionally, I feel abandoned. And I think it is entirely permissible, yes, even advisable for us to pray this prayer. God, will you allow me to feel your presence? Like, theoretically, I know that you're here. I don't feel it. Can you reveal your presence to me in a tangible way? Some people especially those of us who have survived a tragedy, will say, I don't know where God was when this happened. But an amazing writer on grief, the book is called A Grace Disguise. The author is Jerry Sitzer. He said, sometimes our pain blinds us to some of the many gifts that God has given and is giving us in this moment. So Joseph made an evidence list. He said, here's how I know that God is with me. He gave me success in all that I did. He gave me favor with my boss. He actually has this running mental list of the ways that he knows that God has not left him. Have you considered doing that? Have you actually gone through a week as an individual, as a couple, as a family, and say, hey, right now we're going through this very tumultuous time, but every day we're going to recount the ways that God has been faithful to us. We're to acknowledge the ways that God is with us, that God has shown us kindness here and God gave us favor here. And yes, there's been disappointment in this area, but God has given us success and thriving in this area. Ask God, will you, will you show me your presence? Ask God, will you remind me of very specific ways that I can know that you're with me? And then consider doing this. Look back at your journey. In what ways, in what areas, in what seasons of your life have you felt, felt the presence of God before? Has it been uh, in your times in the word? Has it been when you're kneeling here at the altar? Has it been when you've been worshiping God corporately and hearing somebody like Nate sing a song over you that reminds you of God's character and his faithfulness? Maybe you're somebody who connects with God. You feel his presence when you're in nature, when you're out on the boat or when you're walking by the lake. Or maybe it's when you get out of your self-pity bubble and extend yourself in volunteering or service to others. What, what have been those practices and the places where you have felt God before? Ask God to meet you in those kind of places again and make an intentional effort to revisit them. But if you're gonna survive this unknown season in what feels like a prison, you have to feel the presence of God. And Joseph doesn't just feel God's presence, he finds God's perspective there. That's his second kind of recommendation for surviving to his time in prison is to find the perspective Dictionary definition of perspective is says the art of drawing solid objects on a two-dimensional surface so as to give the right impression 
kind of the realistic impression of their height, width, depth, and position in relation to each other when viewed from a particular point. So an artist drawing a perspective allows you to have kind of depth and to gauge height and difference and sameness. And then perspective is also a particular attitude toward or a way of regarding something, a point of view. God gives both of these gifts to Joseph in prison. Joseph sees God in a proper perspective, he sees himself in a right perspective, and he sees his circumstances in a right perspective. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime later, after Joseph has already been in prison, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offend their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph is confined. And the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended to them. So it says sometime later, we don't know if that's weeks, months, or even years. After they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? Look at, look at that for a second. Verse 6, it says, Joseph saw that they were dejected. The fact that Joseph can actually notice or identify what's happening in somebody else's emotional world is a sign of a changed man. Because 17-year-old Joseph didn't care if you were having a bad day. He was too busy rocking his coat and dreaming about the day when you would worship him. Joseph wasn't thinking about where other people were struggling. So the fact here in this moment that he can actually see that somebody else's countenance has dropped, that they're feeling dejected, the fact that he can identify that shows that God is doing a work in him. He's changing the way that he sees others, changing the way that he sees himself. And then we see this. It says, we both had dreams, they answered, but there was no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream, and he said to him, In a dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossoms, and its custards ripened into grape. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. I love it. Like, he doesn't ask for time to reflect. He doesn't spend time in prayer. Like, God has just given him this intuitive sense. This is one of his gifts. It's this, this rich discernment. This is what it means. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. So the good news is, Joseph has eyes for others. The bad news is, he's like, I'm still stuck here. Help a brother out. Get me out of this joint. Get, plead my case when you see your boss. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had been given, uh, that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. He's like, my cell, that thing you did for my cellmate, that was awesome. Do me next. I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket, there were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. 
This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. It's like, wait, can you try again? Like, because that guy got a good one, and mine was not so much. And, and not, it didn't even just say, like, hey, it's going to end badly for you. Get your affairs in order. It's like, it, he goes into graphic detail about how badly he's going to die. Now, in my mind, I, I used to ask, like, how is that a gift? Like, how is this, like, good ministry at all? This sounds horrible and depressing. And then I realized, if I only had three days to live and somebody had that information, would I want them to give it to me? Yeah, I would. I would want time to prepare. I would want time to write letters. I would want time to say goodbye. I would want time to get my house in order and to get right with God. And so even though Joseph gives the baker bad news, in a way, he's still showing him compassion. He's still giving him a gift. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer, to his position, so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. Now the good news is, is that the cupbearer now knows that God's hand is on Joseph. He wasn't just right for his dream, he was right for the other guy's dream. Joseph is two for two, he's undefeated in dream interpretation. The bad news is the what? The Butler, the cupbearer, immediately turns around and forgets to show the one favor to Joseph that he was supposed to. He forgets to relay the message to Pharaoh. Mind you, somebody that he sees every day. Joseph's character is getting refined in prison. He is moving from being selfish to selfless, from being egocentric to being others-centered. He goes from wanting others to revolve around him and bow down to them to being immediately aware of other people's concerns and putting his own needs aside to help them. This is how you know that God's given you perspective. When you're able to kind of break out of your tunnel vision from your own woundedness and your own trauma and your own grief and be able to take a a step back and zoom out and have God give you kind of peripheral vision for what's happening around you. It's about 12 years ago, I was training for a triathlon. I was swimming at a pool in our local health club, and all of a sudden, I just had, I had this knifing pain in my back. My chest got tight, and I couldn't breathe. And I turned to a buddy of mine in my locker room. I was like, try not to panic, because dudes, it's embarrassing to panic in the locker room. And I was like, hey, I think I'm having trouble breathing. Something might not be right. Um, if I pass out, can you get help? Like, and uh, he goes, yeah, I'll do that. And um, he called an ambulance before I told him that he should, and that was embarrassing to me. You don't want to get hauled out of the gym on a gurney, uh, but I did. And uh, I was like yelling at people, like, work it out, it's bad for your health, don't do it, it'll kill you. And uh, so they get me to the hospital, and they diagnose me with a collapsed lung. And so when your lung separates from your chest wall, it can no longer inflate, and in uh, very dire circumstances, it can actually be fatal. So I was in the hospital for about three days, and at the time, Kelly and I had a young daughter, Grace, and Kelly was... Um, watching her on her own, and I missed them, and I felt guilty not being able to help around the house. And After a while, I started getting just, just cold and angry and lonely and tired, and I just remember complaining to God in my hospital bed, like, what is going on? I hate being here. I don't like this. I didn't ask for this. I'd like to leave now. 
And I just remember in one of these moments of lucidity, this doesn't happen to me very often, but every once in a while, um, I've, like, my radar gets tuned into the frequency that God is speaking at, and God said, Steve, have you stopped to consider that there are other people who are in this hospital too? And they don't want to be here either. And maybe you're here for this season to encourage them and to help them. And I'm like, I don't want to help them. I want to get out. This is, the whole thing is depressing. And so the next day I felt just prompted to turn to the guy I was sharing a room with. You got that little tiny curtain. And he had been up most of the night just struggling to breathe and to sleep. And I said, hey, Jack. I was just kind of yelling at him through the curtain. I go, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some passages from Scripture. Do you want to listen to them? He goes, yeah, that would be great. And so like I try to gather what of the gown I could together and shuffle over to his side of the room and sit down in those like frigid upholstered chairs and open up the Bible and just, we just read, we read the Psalms together. And it was good for him and it was good for me. And I felt like the gift that God had given me in a season that I didn't want to be in was perspective that I wasn't the only one there. So I had another kind of very vivid example of this for our family last week. If your children play youth soccer at all or they play club or travel soccer, you know that like Father's Day weekend is tryouts. And uh, a friend of ours who used to coach on Facebook, she said, good luck to the worst day of the year for soccer parents. Like this is what she posted last Saturday morning. And so our daughter, Naomi, she has played on the, the kind of the tier one team for her club on the east side of the state. She's done that for the last three years. She loves it. And so coming over here to this side of the state was a new experience for her. And so the club that she was working out for, they had their tryouts in Byron Center. And so we were there. And she was trying out to be on the, on the A team for the first team. So it's a two-hour tryout. She's there for about 90 minutes. All of a sudden, the coach pulls her over the sideline. They have a brief conversation. She works her way all the way around the field. And then as soon as she gets within six feet of Kelly and I, she just bursts into tears. And she says, they want, they want me to be on the B team. And we're like, well, hon, that's, that's great. This is, it's a great club. It's a good opportunity for you to, to kind of continue to stretch and learn. But, like, our hearts are breaking with her. And so we give her a hug and then kind of send her back out. And she plays for another half an hour. And when it's all over, she's walking off the pitch with another girl. And they seemed like they were engaged in some kind of lively conversation. And when we got back to the vehicle, I said, Naomi, who was that? And she goes, oh, that was Claire. I go, what were you guys talking about? She goes, oh, this is her home club. She's like, she was on the A team for the last four years, and she just got cut. And this year, she's on the B team. And all, she's, she's not going to get to play with any of her friends anymore. She's, she's really sad. She was crying. And I go, so what, it, what did you tell her? And she goes, well, I told her that there were eight girls who tried out who didn't make either of these teams, and we should be grateful to be on a team at all, and we should all be proud of ourselves for trying our best. And Kelly and I looked at each other like, whose kid is that? <laughs> like, we, we, like Kelly, and I, this, Kelly and I were muttering on the sideline. We're like, that coach, he didn't even give her a second look. Like, we're all, like, all muttering and complaining on her behalf. She's already over it. And not only that, she's like pastoring other weeping girls that she's known for 75 minutes. And when we walked her out to the car, we're like, Naomi, thank God for you. We're like, no matter whatever happens on the field at any point in your career, this is who God has created you to be. And we're glad that this is who you are. And sometimes the enemy will try to derail us in seasons and just try to feed that fire of anger and bitterness and resentment and say, you were wronged and isn't this horrible and where is God for you now? And I think that when we're in prison, God wants to give us perspective to hit pause, take a step back and say, okay, I'm not the only person whose heart is aching in this moment. 
And because I know that there's a God who loves me and because I can feel his presence, maybe I can catapult off of that and be strength for somebody who needs someone to lean on because they're terrified too and they're hurting too and they're grieving too. God sometimes allows us to walk these paths because it gives us a desire to feel his presence and it gives us a burn to find his perspective, to find that perspective. Genesis 40, verse 23 says, The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And so Joseph continues to linger. And maybe if you're lingering in that prison season, you can ask questions like these. God, now that I'm here, and because there's no immediate end in sight, what do you want me to see? God, now that I'm here, what do you want me to know? And God, as long as you have me in this season, what rough edges are you trying to sand off in my character? I believe that if we want to survive the prison season, we have to feel the presence of God. We have to find the perspective of God. And then finally, we have to fight the power. Fight the power of despair. Author... Timothy Keller says that in the Joseph story, he faces a number of different temptations. He goes that first there's a temptation to sexual immorality, then there's a temptation to misuse his boss's money, and then he goes, finally, he goes, and I would call this maybe the dangerous and greatest temptation of all. Joseph faces the temptation to give up. He faces the temptation to despair. The temptation to despair. I remember reading a business book many years ago. It was a bestseller by an author by the name of Jim Collins. The book was called Good to Great. And in it, he talked about how business leaders often struggle with the temptation to despair, especially when a new business uh, is struggling and the wheels are coming off in the economy. He goes, many of us, we just, we're ready to throw in the towel and walk away. And he said, in my research, I've discovered this amazing principle called the Stockdale Paradox. And I'll let him explain it to you in his own words. He says, the name refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, who is the highest-ranking United States military officer in Vietnam in the Hanoi Hilton, prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973, Stockdale lived out the war without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. They had no idea how it was going to resolve. But Admiral Stockdale said this. He says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event in my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. And the author asked him, he goes, well, there were some people like yourself who survived, and there are other people who never made it out. What, what made the difference? Who didn't make it out? And to his surprise, this is what the author heard. Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. The people who didn't make it out were the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they would say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. Optimism is not the same as hope. Hope is the choice to put my confidence in God, not my wishes, not my deadlines, and not my willpower. 
Admiral Stockdale said this, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. So he goes, you have to be completely tuned in to what is actually happening. And at the same time, you have to hold on to faith that you'll prevail in the end. So he goes, holding on to that faith is not the same as denying your present circumstances. I have a friend who is watching his marriage kind of unravel before his eyes and his wife had moved into a different bedroom in their house and was making choices that were not boding well for their future together. But he said, every day I would get home from work and I would sit in the driveway and say, maybe today, maybe today will be the day that she'll find her way back to me. And he goes, and eventually I realized that it wasn't going to happen. And he goes, and a critical part of my healing was accepting the fact that she was moving out and walking away. And he goes, even though that was a hard reality to stomach, I would say, okay, God, now that this is real, and now that it feels final, will you give me hope for what's next? And his hope wasn't in a particular outcome. His hope was in his creator, his, his sustainer, and his redeemer. The gift, we have this great gift in the Psalms, which are faith that is wrapped in reality. A lot of times the psalmist will say, I'm in a pit and I don't like it here. I'm in a prison, I'm being pursued by my enemies. This is very real. I'm not in denial of what is happening in my immediate set of circumstances. That said, God, you are the only one I can lean on. Will you help me? I've been reading through the Psalms in my own time with God this summer in Psalm 33, verse 22, as I read yesterday. He says, Lord, let your unfailing love surround us for our hope is in you alone. Our hope is in you alone. And when Joseph is battling despair in prison, what does he learn? He learns to put his hope in God and in God alone. Because up until this point, what has he done? He put his hope in his dad, who failed him. He put his hope in his brothers, who failed him. In his boss, who failed him. His boss's wife, who failed him. The cupbearer, who failed him. The sister, who failed him. Everybody that Joseph has ever leaned on has splintered under the weight of his hopes and expectations. But he says, God, even though this is bleak, I'm not rolling over. My hope is in you, you first, and you alone. And God had a long view plan for Joseph's three plus years in prison. Something that Joseph couldn't see. And something that it was impossible for Joseph to know what was around the corner. But we get to hear it now. When two full years had passed, two full years had passed, how many times? So that's what, 800 cup deliveries that the cupbearer forgot to, to mention Joseph's story? Pharaoh had a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer kicks himself. That's not in the Hebrew. That's my commentary. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. He's like, oh no. There's a guy in prison who must really hate me right now. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants. He imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon. He had his head shaved and changed his clothes and he came before Pharaoh. So remember, in this story, the prison complex is probably adjacent to the palace throne room. So the, the distance that he has to travel is maybe only 20, 30, 40 yards. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it. 
But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can't interpret it. And what does Joseph say? Joseph says, I can't do it. This is the humility that we never saw 13 years ago when he was 17. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God, God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so Joseph interprets the dream, which if you know the story is a warning of famine. And Joseph says, if you administer, if you govern the country this way over these next 14 years, you can minimize the loss of life in your country. And he does such a brilliant job laying out an administrative strategy that Pharaoh says, this plan seems good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked his court, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? The Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made this all known to you, there is no one so wise and discerning as you are. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He doesn't have a background check. He doesn't have to, like, go to HR. Nobody checks his references. This guy goes straight from being in jail to being the vice president of the largest superpower in the world at that time. Then Pharaoh took his ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. I don't know about you. But when I look at seasons of heartache or disappointment in my life, when I look at seasons where I have felt trapped or overwhelmed, in my mind, I think, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to have a season where I'm not in control, where I'm in prison, and then I'm going to have a season where I get out of prison, and then when I'm out of prison, I'm going to catch my breath, I'm going to lick my wounds, I'm going to heal, God is going to prepare me, and then there will be this other season where I'll finally get to do all the things that I wanted to do, right? So there's prison, there's palace, and then there's this long, comfortable transition period in between. Is that how the story goes? No. How much time transpires between jo when Joseph steps out of his cell and to when he's riding on a chariot down the streets where government employees are telling everybody to scatter? It happens on the same day. The same day. In fact, Joseph really only has, what, 20 minutes to have his head shaved and take a shower and put on clean clothes, and then he's standing in front of Pharaoh. He had no idea, not only that that would be the day that he got out, which would have been enough for him, but he skyrocketed to a role that he never could have imagined. He didn't just get out of prison, he ascended to the palace, and it all happened in one day, in one day, one day. And sometimes I like to think in my mind about, like, uh, scales that have pebbles on them. And it's almost as if every day that Joseph was... In prison, God was adding another pebble to the scales of his destiny. And even though Joseph didn't feel anything shift, on one day when that last pebble went on there, the scales just dramatically flipped. And all of a sudden, Joseph experienced something dramatic. Now, I'm not saying that God is promising or owes all of us something dramatic, but I'm not saying that he's beyond it either. And here's what I love about Joseph's story. When he was young and obnoxious, his dad gave him a coat. And every time he put on that coat, what did he think? He's like, I'm special. I'm the favorite. I'm the beloved. I'm going to be the boss of my family. His identity had been derived from a broken system, from an insecure father. And God said, Joseph, that's not the robe I want for you. 
So God tore it off. And then there's another chapter in Joseph's life where he gets to Egypt and he gets clothed again. And this time he gets an outfit from his boss. He gets his kind of company uniform. And that robe speaks to what? It spoke to his comfort. It spoke to his security. It spoke to something that was predictable and safe. And God said, Joseph, that's not the robe that I want for you either. And even though it was a horrific set of circumstances, he allowed him to be stripped of that robe too. And while Joseph was in prison, God used that time to form his mind, to frame his heart, prepare his will to get him ready for what? The one robe that he was always supposed to wear. And that was the robe of his destiny. It's interesting, a lot of people think that the robe that Joseph got in the beginning had like a lot of colors, a lot of glitter, and a lot of distractions. Some people think that the robe that he would have received from Pharaoh was just a plain white linen robe. Like there wouldn't have been anything fancy about it at all. But as soon as that ring accompanied it and that gold collar went along with it, it told the world, this is a person of influence. And he went from being a nobody to being somebody who put systems in place that saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, even the people who had done him wrong. And is it possible that God has you in a prison? God has you in a crucible of character where he's saying, hey, I know that things aren't ideal, and I know that other people have done you wrong, and I know that you would never choose these set of circumstances, but while you're here, I'm going to give you the gift of my presence. I'm going to give you the gift of perspective. I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you insight that you didn't have before you got here. And I'm going to give you the power to fight off despair and anchor yourself in my hope. So as Nate and the team come back to reprise this song, I want you to maybe consider closing your eyes. Or maybe open your hands. Or maybe you're somebody who needs to like come down to the altars and say, God, I've, I've been finding my identity from other people and I've been finding my identity from work and from family and from fans and exes. And just today, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna kneel before, I'm gonna humble myself and say, God, I need you, I need you to give me a gift. I need, I need the rain of your love to quench the longings of my soul. And God, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, for those of us who are feeling overwhelmed today, I believe that God wants to give us a gift of spiritual refreshment. And it's up to us to decide whether or not we want to have a posture we can receive it. So again, uh, the team's going to be present to pray with and for you. If you want that, you can come down and just kind of flood this place. But let's take these next few moments to say, God, I need you. Will you meet me at my point of great need right here and right now?